Well, good morning, Resurrection. Okay, no one says good morning back. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Sam. All right. Off to a great start with the, with the, with the B team here. So um, it's good to be with you. We have been, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Sam Weinsgarber. I serve as one of the elders here. Um, and uh, was supposed, uh, Matt was supposed to be out of town, but is not today. So you're still stuck with me. So, uh, you know, sorry about that. Um, this fall, we have been studying the book of Daniel um, as we have asked the question, what does it mean to be a church and Christians who are committed uh, to the city? And we've learned from the first half of the book of Daniel, which is the narrative and historical uh, kind of chronological path that Daniel takes as a young man taken captive uh, when Israel is exiled and God allows them to be conquered. Uh, we've learned from, you know, the stories of Daniel, Daniel's life of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, the, um, the fiery furnace, and uh, uh, the lion's den as we've learned what it, meant, what it means to be Christians who act with integrity, who persevere in the midst of suffering, what it's like to have humility in the city and even facing disillusionment in the city. And last week we uh, turned uh, a page literally in the book of Daniel uh, as we now enter the, um, the visions of Daniel. Uh, and the rest of the book of Daniel after chapter 7 is a series of visions that Daniel has. And we, what we learned last week uh, in the message was that this type of literature is called apocalyptic literature uh, and it's a relatively rare type of literature in the bible and it's not just meant to refer to us uh, to the end times it's not meant to discourage us but really what a the true meaning of apocalyptic literature is um, is to give us a deeper revelation uh, a deeper reality deeper understanding of god's uh, ongoing mission in the world and what is happening spiritually around us and it's sometimes easy as Christians for us to look at the world in which we live and kind of go what the heck uh, is going on and trying to put all of the things and the information that we are uh, you know that we are confronted with on a daily basis it's hard sometimes for us to really understand and it's moments like this it's moments like Daniel's prayer where there is a vision that he has from the Lord or an understanding that is revealed to Daniel that gives us pause and a, and a sense of what is really going on in the world around us. And in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1 through 19, we see that the understanding and the revelation that Daniel has drives him to a fervent prayer uh, for the city and the nation around him. And there are four main points uh, I am not a professional seminary trained speaker, so I don't have three points. I have four points, and I could not for the life of me figure out how to whittle it down into three points. So I apologize. I promise we're going to go the same amount of time as normal, but there are four points. Uh, and the first point is that true prayer comes from a love of God's word. The second thing is uh, that Daniel's prayer teaches us is true prayer leads us to cry out for mercy. Number three is true prayer allows us to pray the whole truth. And then finally, we're going to learn that true prayer gives us faith in the promises of God. So would you pray with me as we invite God's presence here today to help us learn and understand and illuminate our hearts? Heavenly Father, we invite you into this time and into this space and invite your spirit to work in our lives and to challenge and to change us. Would you, by your word, illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth today? 
Would you comfort us in our need? Would you be merciful to us? Would you hide the wisdom of man and the faults of this messenger that God, by only your power and your truth, could lives be changed today? Help us to become more fully devoted followers of you and help us to learn and apply your truth today. Amen. Well, the first point, if you're a note taker, is that true prayer comes from a love of God's word. And if you're like me, uh, it's easy to, when you're reading a passage of scripture, to kind of skip over the first couple of really boring introductory comments in a, of a text. When I get to, I have never really, this is probably terrible as an elder to admit, but I've never read Matthew chapter 1 because it's a genealogy. And I just kind of been like, okay, someone came from somewhere. I get it, God. Like, let's get on to the manger and the story. Or sometimes when it's, you know, in Galatians or uh, Paul's epistle letter, I kind of skip over the part where Paul's like, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, you know, and he lists like a litany of things and people and places. And I kind of just kind of skip over that. But if you read with me in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2, which is in your bulletin, the author uses a really important word here called perceived. And it says, I, Daniel, verse 2, Perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations in Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And the author uses that word, I think, in, in, in context of this idea of, of apocalyptic or revelation. Right? To perceive something is more than just to read. Perceive, to perceive something is to interpret and to understand. And if you're often like me, uh, when, when I get to read my Bible, which is, you know, not every day, but, you know, four to five times a week, most of the time when I read my Bible, I'm just like checking a thing off the list, right? Because it's what a Christian is supposed to do. It's what an elder as a church is supposed to do. But oftentimes, like, I'm thinking in my head over and over, like, all right, I got this going on. I got this going on. I got this going on. And it's easy to get into that routine and that pattern of rather than just sitting down and allowing God's word to immerse herself. And I think that the author of Daniel uses the word perceive to draw our attention that this is more than just reading. This is more. This is an intentional time to study and become immersed in God's word. And if we remember what our definition of the word apocalypse means, we understand that when God, when you allow yourself to sit down and to be deeply rooted and study God's word, apocalypse happens. Revelation happens. And what Daniel would have perceived or understood at this time is that the end of the desolation, the end of, of Israel's exile is coming. According to one scholar, Ian Duguid, the likely passage in Jeremiah that, uh, that he is referring to, if you have your Bible or if you have an app, uh, we're going to be flipping back and forth for a little bit from Jeremiah chapter 29. So Daniel is reading Jeremiah chapter 29, and what he would have understood is Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. And it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. And for Daniel, understanding this, this reality, this revelation, would have been the culmination of everything that that Daniel would have been wanting and praying for. He would have perceived and he would have understood that, that God was finally bringing them back out of exile, back into the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That prior to Israel's exile, 
the people of God were flourishing in the nation of Israel, and he was finally restoring their promise. And rather than just hunkering down and waiting for that time when God's when God would return, rather than going out and telling people, hey, our exile is almost over. It's interesting to me that he is instead driven to this emotional and fervent prayer. And so rather than just waiting for deliverance, Daniel is moved to this beautiful and emotional prayer. And it kind of begs the question, why? Because at the same time that this moment, which is the moment that Daniel would have been waiting for, that every Israel was waiting for, for God to bring them out of exile, out of the subjugation of a false kingdom, and back into the promised land. Daniel also would have known and read verse 20, uh, Jeremiah 29, 17 through 18, which is what's going to happen to Babylon, what's going to happen to the world around him after the exile and during the process in which God is bringing them back. And it says this, that thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them, Babylon, a sword, a famine, and a pestilence. I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten that they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword and famine and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. They will be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach of all the nations where I have driven them. And what Daniel understood, and the reason why he is so moved to prayer, is that he understands both of these truths. That at the moment, that the, the day that we as Christians have been waiting for, which is the triumphal return of Christ, and, and being brought back with him in the restoration of how the world should be. At the same time, he holds in tandem that truth that means it's the world around him coming to an end. And we as Christians have to admit that that's a complex truth to hold. And it seems and it seems troublesome. It seems futile, right? Because Daniel would have read in, in the same chapter in Daniel, or Jeremiah chapter 29, God told them to do this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, the God of Israel to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage and multiply. And do not decrease. For seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that seems, that, that's a hard truth to have. That God has told us to plant our lives for as long as we're here. Whether you are here in Madison as a college student or a graduate student or a medical student. Or maybe you're at Epic and you're here for one day or you're going to sabbatical Or maybe you're here for a lifetime. God has called you to plant roots. And to develop relationships in this city. And it seems weird that he would tell you to do that just in 70 years like the nation of Israel, that he would bring it to a close and bring destruction down. But do you see the missional heart of God in this? Do you see what we as Christians and what Israelites were meant to do to live out their faithful presence? Because when you love the city around you, whether you're here for a day or a lifetime, understanding that God has called you to be in this place roots you in mission here. And it should cause us to pray for our city in a way that Daniel does. 
Because when we love something as dearly as Daniel loved the people and, and, and the city around him, and we understand both of those truths that our great, greatest triumph also means the destruction of the world around us. We are called and motivated to mission. We are called to share the gospel. We are called to serve our city. Why? Because we know that the truth, we know that as Christians, what is also true in one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, which is Jeremiah 29, 11, that for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And as the people of God, motivated to tell others about God, we know that all things work together for our good to them that love the Father. And it's so that we are so woven into the fabric of this city that we can hold these two difficult and complex truths together and it motivates us to prayer. And there are several things that we should be encouraged and challenged by uh, from what we can see in Daniel's prayer. And if you're a note taker, this would be the second note uh, or the second point that true prayer leads us to cry out for mercy. When we have an apocalyptic moment, when we have that supernatural way that only God can reveal his truth and we truly understand the world around us and we truly understand how God's mission is unfolding around us, we should be compelled to cry out as Daniel did for mercy. But I think mercy, at least for me, seems to be the most unnatural and antithetical of the human experience. Everything about our age and culture and norms and customs deride the prospect of mercy. The biblical definition of mercy is the withholding of a judgment or a punishment that we deserve. And we love as a society, my entire profession as a lawyer is built on this idea of justice, not mercy. We love when justice prevails. We love when the good guy wins. We love when we are vindicated in the end. We love, and we love grace as a people. We love stories where we get things that we don't deserve. We love heartwarming stories and our, and our social media uh, feeds are filled with, with random acts of kindness and good things happening to people not through any of their own merit. But over and over and over again, we see Daniel cry out for mercy. In verse three, I turn my face to the Lord seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Verse 10, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. And while mercy or while grace and mercy are oftentimes two sides of the same coin, mercy is truly unnatural to us because it is the withholding of something that we feel other people deserve. But by praying and pleading for mercy, we see the heart of the gospel, that God would spare the wrath and judgment on a people who deserve it. That through no merit of our own or the city's own, that God would spare all people from his judgment. That the Jesus who died on the cross in our place as a captive and hell-bound people, uh, that Jesus paid a ransom sufficient enough to save each and every single one of us. And in begging for mercy, we fulfill the great commandment and the great commission 
Because when we pray in the when we pray for the mercy or for mercy in the manner in which Daniel does, we are praying for mercy on the people that we like and the people that we don't like. The people who oppose us and the people who love us. The people who we think deserve mercy and the people that we don't. And it's a hard thing and it's an, and it's an unnatural thing to pray for. But in so doing, we love our neighbor and our enemy in doing so. And I want, you, and I want to give you permission today to pray for mercy. It's okay to pray for those who oppose you. It is okay to pray for those who persecute you. It is okay to pray for those that God would spare them from the coming judgment. And so we learn that, that true prayer comes from a love of God's word and that true prayer can compel us to mercy. We also learn this other truth from Daniel's prayer, which is it's okay to pray the whole truth. If you're a note taker, that's point number three. True prayer allows us to pray the whole truth. In the heart of the text, which is verses uh, 4 through 15, we see Daniel oscillate between two consistent themes, which is admitting his, his and the people's spiritual condition and posture, and then switching to an acknowledgement and acclamation of who God is over and over and over again. And just like I want to give you permission that it is okay to pray for mercy, I want to give you permission today that it's okay to pray the whole truth. Because the whole truth is, is that we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. But oftentimes, like me, if you're like me, if I know that I'm, if I've totally royally screwed up and just messed up, oftentimes, even in my most private moments of prayer with God, I tend not to acknowledge it. I tend not to admit it. I tend to kind of ignore it. And I don't know if you're like me, but that's often Sam Weisgarber's response. And I'll even do you one better. I hide it under good theological terms. I tell God, oh God, you're sovereign. You know everything. So I don't really need to bring this up. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are people who have fallen short of the glory of God. And, it's, and Daniel's prayer models for us that it's okay to admit that. It's okay to, to speak that. But that's only half of the story. And I think that most of us would agree that between the two truths that, that we're going to talk about that Daniel's prayer models for us, which is the truth is that we're sinners and that God alone can save. I think most of us would acknowledge that while both are hard to pray, the easier of the two things is to acknowledge that we are sinners. And that we have rebelled, as Daniel says in verse 5. And that we have openly sinned against God. And like he says in verse 8. And that we have not obeyed his word or his commandment as he says in verse 10. But I think the challenge of this text and the challenge uh, that we face oftentimes is not only is it difficult to pray that truth. It's also pray, difficult to pray the second part of that truth. Which is Daniel prays and models for us that we have to acknowledge and acclaim who God is in relation to who we are. And over and over and over again, Daniel prays who we are, but also acknowledges who God is. Verse 5, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 9, to you, O God, belongs mercy and forgiveness. 
But see the beauty of the gospel and praying the whole truth. That yes, we are sinners, and yes, we have done evil in the eyes of the Lord, but that is only half of the truth. The whole truth is that God alone can save you. And as difficult as that can be, it's the heart of the gospel. And it doesn't end, God doesn't just leave us in our sin, but he provides a way to be reconciled to him. I would humbly suggest to you that the God of the Bible is not worth following if he is incapable of saving you. I would challenge you to believe that the God of the Bible is not worth following if he cannot save you. But in praying the truth, in praying the whole truth, we realize and we become immersed in the gospel, which is, yes, I am a sinner, but God alone can save me. And he is a God who loves to save his people. And that is good news. And so the last thing that we see in Daniel's prayer is not only is prayer rooted in a love for God's word and that it is okay to pray for mercy and that we as Christians should be encouraged to pray not just half a truth but the whole truth. But true prayer gives us faith in the promises of God. Daniel concludes his prayer by speaking one of the most audacious challenges to God I've read in the scriptures, which is to keep your promises, end your people's suffering, bring your people home, and destroy your enemies. Look at with me in, in your bulletin at Daniel chapter 9 and 17 through 19. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to he and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And I love this in verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And in other words, Daniel writes up the bill, or writes up the receipt and hands God the receipt and says, it's time to pay up. And just like I want to challenge you to have permission to pray for mercy and permission to pray the whole truth, I want to give you permission like Daniel to challenge God to keep his promises. When we read this complex passage, when we read this complex narrative, and we know that we are wrestling between two equal truths, that we would trust God and, and, and give him his receipt and say, God, hold, hold your promises. Fulfill what you told us you would do. Which also begs the question for us today. Do you know God's word well enough to hand him that receipt? Do you see the cyclical and symbiotic and interdependence here between your love for God's word and your ability to conclude, and like Daniel, to conclude your prayers in such an audacious manner? Do you see the, the inter interdependence of knowing God's word and how to pray for God's word and being revealed and, and having something perceived to you in the truth of the scripture and then turning around and saying, God, <clears throat> hold, do this. God, hold your promises, save your people, spare your people, and bring us home. 
And it's sometimes easy. It's easy, uh, it's easy for us to, to feel like Daniel probably did when he initially read Jeremiah, that it can be frustrating. It can be frustrating to hold those truths. And it's easy for the enemy to come in and try to drive you away from God's word and away from a love for his word and a love for prayer. Right? Because it's easy for us to, add, to, to read these complex truths in Jeremiah and in Daniel and be driven to despair. Like our prayers don't matter. Or our prayers can't change uh, God's mind. Maybe even sometimes you're confronted with, like me, in theological terms. Which is, oh, if God is so sovereign, if God is so perfect, and God is so in control of everything, does prayer even matter? And the enemy would love nothing more than to drive that wedge home. But I love how one commentator put this. It is worth noting that Daniel's progression progression from faith and God's sovereignty to passionate prayer is exactly opposite of the question, if God is sovereign, why should I pray? In fact, Daniel's prayer models for us that because God is sovereign, it is why I pray. Daniel didn't turn to this prayer because he thought he could delay, distract, or change God's mind. Nor was it because he thought God's plan had failed and he was untimely. Rather, Daniel turned to such deep and emotional and intimate prayer because he knew exactly what God's word had promised. And Jesus, too, modeled Daniel's attitude about prayer. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus himself was in earthly ministry and in his flesh, would cry out to the God who with he would cry out with loud cries and tears and supplications to the Father, whom the author of Hebrews says Jesus knew was able to save him, but wouldn't. And so Jesus in Daniel's example models for us that God's sovereignty And his control over all things does not negate his command for his people to pray. It does not negate his command for his people to cry out for mercy. It does not negate the command for his people to pray the whole truth. So what do we do from here? If you're not a believer here today... I would humbly suggest to you that it is time for you to cry out for mercy and that it is okay to admit the truth, which is that you are a broken and uh, sinful person and that God alone can save you. And friend, that this is your only hope in life, that this is your only comfort, that in life and in death and body and soul, that you belong to the Lord Jesus. That's the only thing that can save you today. And maybe you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith. And maybe your objections to the Christian faith are based on your experience with other Christians being hypocritical or political or judgmental or divisive. Or maybe you're here today and your objection to Christianity is, is because of me. Because For many of you, you know me and you're probably looking at me like, why is this guy up here? And I'll be honest, I asked that question a lot this week too. One of the hardest things about studying this text is realizing that I don't pray like this. 
I called Matt on Monday and I was basically trying to wiggle my way out of this going, I don't know how, you, how pastors do this and live in such a way where they, they read a text and they look at their life and they every week go, I don't do any of this. But let me offer you this helpful analogy from John Dixon in his book, Bullies and Saints. Is a masterpiece of music any less of a masterpiece because of the musician who plays it? For anyone here at ResPres who knows I am one of the most musically talented people you will ever meet. That's a lie. Yeah. But you cannot disregard the beauty of a masterpiece because it is Sam Weisgarber who plays it. Rather, you must judge the composition itself. A masterpiece of music is a masterpiece irrespective of how talented Sam Weisgarber is, or stick whoever name it is in you. And we come to communion in just a few moments. And I would encourage you to, by faith, take communion. Come to the table that the Lord Jesus has set for you to remind you that it is him who sustains you. It is him who encourages you. That this mission that he has for you is not dependent on who you are. It only depends on your faithfulness. It only depends on God working in you and through you. And that's the point of communion. I'm taking communion today probably for the first time in a long time. Really understanding that, man, I did not live up to what this text said to do today. And if I can take communion Come, because it's for you. It is for people like me. And maybe you're here all day and you're all in. You're already praying like Daniel prayed. You're already motivated like Daniel was motivated. You've had that apocalyptic vision and now you're filled with energy and excitement, but you don't know how to exercise it. And that happens. So what do you do? And it's while we wait for him to return, we work. We work for the good of this city. We plant our lives and our flag and our families in this city. We go to Epic and as frustrating as it can be, we work hard. I go to work and as frustrating as my last couple of months at work have been, I work hard because that's what God told me to do. And while I hope for his triumph and I hope that he comes back so I don't have to do that report that I have been putting off for months, I obey his commandments and we pray for our city and we live out the great commission and we live out the great commandment. And while we trust in his promises, we come and we pray for this city. We pray for this city to know and to love him, which we're gonna do in just a moment. And let's remind ourselves of the truth of Jeremiah 29, that we are to seek the welfare of this city where God has put us and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in Madison's welfare, you will find your welfare. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> it's a privilege to share your word and your truth with, with the people that I love dearly. Lord, I pray that you would hide my imperfections and how truly short I fell, I fall. 
when confronted with texts like this. But just like me, thank God that you extend to all of us in this room the ability to come and to be nourished and nurtured by your body and blood. Would you feed us today? Would you encourage us? Would you protect us? Amen.